You're listening to the Revelation Podcast brought to you by Open Bible Baptist Church. We're so glad you've chosen to listen today. To learn more about Open Bible or to hear more messages, please visit openbible.ca. In today's episode, Dr. Neil Swatsky talks about the angel who comes to John with a little book. Who is this angel? What is the book? Why is the book both sweet and sour? To answer these questions, here is Dr. Neil Swatsky. Well, we're back to the book of the Revelation. It has been a while now. However, we had just a phenomenal presentation last Sunday night. Uh, Just wanted to take that opportunity to thank our youth department, Pastor Jason and the young people, for doing this summary of uh, future things. In my personal opinion, it was right on target. Uh, One Something that I have believed in from... Bible school days and something I have taught and preached down through the years and they didn't miss a beat. It was just really a wonderful, wonderful presentation and I thank you young people. Now what I want you to know is that while we are I think about 110% committed to that truth, it's not something that everybody believes. Okay, and the other thing is that it is a theory. It is a theory because it hasn't happened yet, and uh, things can be somewhat different from what we think. Uh, But I just want to mention something to you. I, I I was there for support purpose at a men's meeting yesterday. A friend of mine was presenting end time uh, things to a church, to a group of men, and uh, he had sent me his information and asked if I could critique it ahead of time and asked if I, if I personally would agree with what he was saying. Of course, it was right on target, so it was, was everything was just downright uh, really well done. And he presented his, uh, his findings uh, in a very professional way and uh, did a really good job. And uh, I said to him, I said, look, I said, there's no need for me to critique what you said. And he wants to meet for coffee so I can tell him where. I said, no. I said, it was just right on. But I will accept your coffee. I said, we'll do that. I said, so I went to the most senior pastor there and I asked him, I said, is, is the church here, is it, is it premillennial? He said, oh, absolutely. He says, premillennialism is very important to us. In fact, he said, we have it in our constitution that we are a premillennial church. And I said, are you pre-tribulational? You know what his answer was? Well, we would all like to be. (laughs) We would all, well, yeah, wouldn't we all like to be? So when I say it's a theory, but coming back to my friend, he said, while we were having breakfast together, he said, I didn't realize how strongly I believe these things until I put it together on paper to present it. He said, I believe very, very strongly. And I want to say to you, I believe very, very strongly in what I preach. I don't know of anything that I preach I don't believe in very strongly. <clears throat> so if I don't believe it very strongly, I just don't preach it. So, so I, I, I present to you what I personally see. Now, there are lots of authors and a lot of teachers and a lot of, uh, lot of material out there that talk about this. And so, of course, we study a lot of these things. But I just want us to be aware that just because we believe, as we saw last Sunday night, and as we preach here on Sunday nights, just because we believe it and we believe it strongly doesn't mean that all Christians do. And so, 
I sat at a table a while ago uh, where uh, we were just talking about end time things and one lady just matter-of-factly just said, oh, Christians go through the tribulation at least part of the way. Just just up front, just like that. No, no question, is this true or I believe this? It's just a matter of fact. Christians go through the tribulation at least a part of the way. And uh, so uh, I went on to explain why that couldn't be. And so the result of that is I'm going to teach a group of people on Wednesday night about pre-tribulationism. And I'm hoping that that's going to be profitable. So the church here will have a Bible study prayer meeting. Pastor Friesen will take care of that. But I'm going to be away this coming Wednesday to take care of that. <clears throat> I'm very glad when some of these churches ask pastors to come and help clarify this because premillennial dispensational doctrine is a dying thing. And the modern, modern stuff is taking over. So what our young people did last Sunday night was a reinforcement in their minds that this is how it happens. And I'm hoping you believe it. <clears throat> and I'm hoping that the first time you're challenged, you're not going to throw it all out the door, which some people do, by the way. And, uh, and, and the most reasonable thing is the literal view of what the Bible says. That's the most reasonable thing. And so I want us to be sure that we're on that same page. So coming tonight to the book of the Revelation, we're in chapter 10. This chapter is kind of unique. It just kind of gives us a complete different uh, approach to things, just a complete different type of message in the midst of the Revelation. And uh, what we have in the 10th chapter is we have an angel who comes and who stands part on the earth and part on the sea. And this angel has a book in his hand, and this angel gives that book to John, and uh, he is supposed to eat this book, and so this is what this message is all about. So we're going to be looking at this tonight and look at the angel and his little book. We notice this in Revelation chapter 10. And so in the first five verses, I want us to look at the description of this angel. And so we notice in verse number one that he is a mighty angel. I have underlined the two words that I see in, in the beginning of the verse, and I just want you to look at that with me, where the John wrote this, and he said, And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. Now, we have seen angels in the book of the Revelation. We've seen angels blowing trumpets. We've seen angels flying through the air and, and uh, making announcements. And we actually saw an angel come, a fallen angel that came down to open up the abyss so that the locusts could come out and do their damage on the earth. So a variety and different species of angels that have been very active in the prophetic word. This tells us it's still all future, so this is yet to come. So angels one day are going to be very much a part of the unfolding of world events and issues. Uh, they are ministering spirits. They are creatures that God made for his glory and his messengers, and they will indeed be very active. But here we see another angel 
And uh, so that's not the same as the seven angels that are doing the trumpet blowing. This one is separate from the trumpet angels. So this is an angel that is unique and he's different. We notice him uh, clothed in a very unique way. He is kind of clouded. Uh, we see a rainbow on his head. So if you can see that picture of all of these colors that are on his head, uh, his face is as the sun. So that tells us that while his face is distinguishable, at the same time, it is so brilliant and his feet are like the pillars of fire. This is so similar to Revelation chapter 1 that there are a number of commentators who actually believe that this was the Lord Jesus appearing to John in the book of the Revelation. I don't know for sure. I wouldn't cast my lot strongly one way or the other. I would just simply say that the Bible says it was an angel, so therefore... I believe that it was an angel because in the Revelation, if it's going to be Christ, it'll probably be mentioned as Christ, most likely. So I would say that it's, it's one of those messengers. It's one of those messengers that we see in the end of the book when we come closer to the end where John was so overtaken that he actually wanted to bow down and worship the angel and the angel said, uh-uh, you don't worship me. So he was so overwhelmed by it. Daniel tried worshiping the angel, and the angel said, no, no, you don't worship me. Peter wanted to do that, and they said, no, this is not what you do. So we have this very interesting description of this angel. We also notice that he is possessive in that, in verse number two, we read that he had in his hand a little book, and it's open, and he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot on the earth. Now, I think that the meaning of this has got to be rather simple when you, when you consider uh, the presentation of this angel. How he can have one foot on the seas and one foot on the land, and John can sit on the Isle of Patmos and he can describe this, is only something that God can put together for us. So we have this unique uh, vision that he's standing on both parts of the Earth's atmosphere. What does this tell us? I think the angel is telling John that the world is still God's possession. The world is still in God's hand. Now, there's a good reason for this, because up until now, we have seen some things go really bad. We've seen some things happen that would make you believe like things are out of control. We've seen things happen like almost half of the world's population slaughtered through one means or another and horrendous activities from demonic forces and from military forces that have already taken place. And that is not yet the Armageddon. The Armageddon must follow these things. And so what is happening is unprecedented events are taking place in the time of the tribulation. Some people have heard, of course, that the first three and a half years, everything will be like normal and peaceful. So on, uh, uh, it's not normal and peaceful. It's all kinds of horrible things happen. But with all of these horrible things happening, the Lord is communicating that he has not lost control of planet Earth, 
the plan that he has for mankind on the earth has not been thwarted. Man cannot change what God has done, and God, man cannot change what God designs. What he plans to do, he will do. He cannot lose. He must win. And so this is a kind of a word of comfort to the writer of the book of the Revelation when he sits there and he sees that the angel is indicating possession of the earth. This, is, this belongs to the heavenly atmosphere. This belongs to the heavenly government. This doesn't belong to the earthly government. So we see the angel as being possessive. We also see the angel as being authoritative. If you notice that verse 3 tells us, he cried with a loud voice, as when a lion roareth. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now, I know that uh, sometimes we preach, and sometimes we preach very forcefully, sometimes we preach very loudly. I don't do that quite so much anymore, because it would wear me out in one sermon if I tried doing that. So I've kind of simmered down on that somewhat. But I've heard preachers that just really hang from chandeliers when they preach, and they're very, very loud in what they do. And, and if they're saying sensible things, it comes across as authoritative. If it's not so sensible, then it looks foolish. But this angel is not coming with a quiet little gentle message. So I just wanted you to notice this, that this angel comes and he is blasting it out. For whom? Well, I don't think he's giving this message to the people of the world. I don't think he is announcing to anybody else. He is just showing the author of this book that this is the authority from heaven. It's, it's, if you, if you hear Donald Trump's speeches, any of you ever hear any of his speeches? Do you still do that? Okay, there's three of us. Okay. Uh, not in the majority, but, but a few of us. Uh, why does he always yell when he gives the speeches? Well, he wants to be heard. He doesn't want anybody to fall asleep when he presents what he's got to say. I don't think there was any danger of John falling asleep, but this angel is roaring as a lion. And then with that, there comes this very, very unique phenomenon that is repeated a few times somewhat in the scriptures. Here we have the seven thunders and these seven thunders are uttering their voices. Who these seven thunders are, I'm sure you're interested to know, right? Well, you ain't going to, because there's no way of knowing. In fact, what we'll see next is the <laughs> secret to that. But you get the sound from heaven, but, but there's utterances here. The idea of utterance means that there was some audible sound, something intelligible, Kind of like when you hear the rumbling of something out there and it sounds like words that are coming from the rumbling of the distance. And, and uh, we, of course, don't experience that, but that's kind of the picture we have here. And so John hears these seven thunders. And with the sound of the angel roaring out his message as a lion who roars, and then the thunderous sound of voices that are coming, you'll notice that the angel tells him 
that you are not allowed to give this information any further. So, John, this is classified. Nobody will know. Read in verse 4. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write. So that means it was intelligible. These thunders said something. And he got the message. But I heard the voice from heaven. Whatever that voice was, whether it was through this angel or through these. But the voice that came was a restrictive voice in that it says, seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered and write them not. You've seen a few of these incidents in the scriptures. Do you remember that in the book of Daniel, he's given these unbelievable revelations about what will happen even to the detail of the kings of the north, the south, the east, and the west, and how they will come together in the final days to battle at the battle of Armageddon. So huge information that is given to Daniel. And then God said to him, seal up that book. Oh, but we have a lot of it. So we have all that we need, but we don't have everything. And so when I tell you that this is what we believe to be true, we don't have all the information. So we don't know every detail of what is yet to take place. Seal it up. Now we have here in Revelation chapter 10, we have God saying to John, okay, you've heard the message, you understand it, and you're willing to record it, but you're not allowed to. So don't write it. Don't let anybody know what has been said. Why? It's one of those questions that we won't be able to answer until the Lord reveals it to us. If it's important for us to know, we will know one day. But we do not know and have no way of guessing at it. And anybody will try. It's only a guess. What did they say? Do you remember when Paul had the experience of entering into the third heaven? And he had gone up there and he said, I saw visions. I saw revelations. I saw. But he said, God told me not to say anything about it. Three times in the scripture, at least. That we know that God has said, here are some things, but I don't want it to be known ahead of time. So guess what? We still have some real important information going to be revealed to us in days to come. Not before the rapture, but somewhere between the rapture and between the millennial kingdom, we will know what Paul saw. We will know what Daniel was to seal up. We will know what the thunders were to John, who was told not to record it for our benefit. So here we are saying we think we know everything about the future, and we don't. And uh, that's just the long and short of it. That's just God has just not shown everything to us. He has some surprises for us. And I wouldn't be at all surprised now if those were all gems that we couldn't even imagine. On the other hand, what he said in the thunders could have been something that would be so horrendous that we would not want to know it. So those are things that we just don't know. So what we've got here is just when the, uh, when the trumpets are sounding and you recall 
that an angel flies through the air and he says, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth for the coming three woes. And he said, these, uh, these things are past and now the three woes. Two woes have happened and then we've got the seven thunders that roll in here. Uh, so it's, it's somewheres, somewheres at the midpoint of the tribulation. Now, there are a lot of things happening at the midpoint of the tribulation, and I'm not going to go into that tonight. I'm going to deal with that succinctly as we go through it in the revelation. But a lot of things are taking place somewhere around midpoint. I have no way of absolutely proving that this is midpoint, but it is a personal belief that these trumpets are opening up and the woes are coming and we're heading towards the cataclysmic, unbelievable, horrendous last portion of the tribulation, which will be in the unfolding of the last woe and then the seven vials or the seven bowls that are yet to come. So I think that somewhere in here we have the sealed seven thunders, somewhere before that massive time of the great tribulation to come. But we also see that he is a worshiping angel, for we notice in verse number five, and the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the land lifted up his hand to heaven. John I believe the angel comes to say to him when it looks like everything is black and dark and bleak and hopeless and really troublesome, just make sure you look up. This to me is one of the most encouraging parts of the book of the Revelation. It is in, in the midst of the thunder, in the midst of the storm, in the midst of difficulties, Look up. Look up. Don't look at your circumstances, John. Don't look at what you see around you. Don't look at the troubles that people are having and the fear that they're encountering and the terrible environmental issues that are taking place in the world. Don't let this consume you. Keep on worshiping God. I think this is so important for the church. No matter what the issues we face and the difficulties that we run into. The main thing is that God always wants us to lift holy hands up onto heaven so that he can see that we are, in fact, worshiping the God who made us and the God who loves us and the God who protects us in every circumstance of life. Well, I want us to look at the message that was given to John by this angel. We see it in verses 6 and 7. First of all, we notice that the angel is telling John that, look, the delay is over. We read in verse 6, And he swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are therein, and the earth and the things that are therein, or therein are, and the sea and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer. Uh, do you notice here that John, or the angel is, is actually, he's swearing, not foul language, by the way. He's just using the name of God authoritatively. 
And the first thing we notice in verse 6 is that he swore by the eternal God. So the angel wants to bring God-focused thinking into the mind of not only John, but he wants in the mind of the reader, he wants us to be God-focused. And so he's talking about the eternal God, the God who always has been, was not created, but has been eternally past, is eternally present, and shall be eternally there in the future. So he's referring to the eternal God. But I want you to notice also that he was swearing by the creator God. If you look at verse 6 again, you'll notice that the angel is actually saying to him that he uh, who created heaven, who created the things that are in the heavens and the atmosphere, the things that are in the earth, that he made the earth, the things that are in the earth and the sea. So the universe as we see it, the earth as we walk upon it, the sun that we see, the stars that we see, God made them. God made them in a very short order. God made them approximately six, 7,000 years ago. He made them in six days. And then the seventh day he rested. If if you don't accept the Bible, then you wouldn't know this. If you don't believe the Bible, then you wouldn't believe this. The only way, the only way under the sun that you and I can know that God made the heavens and the earth and all things pertaining to the heavens and the earth, the only way we can know that is by the record of Scripture. You couldn't figure it out any other way. Let's, let's suppose that this book is closed and we have no reference to it for the next 1,000 years. And let's say we live for those 1,000 years. But we haven't had this book open to us in a 1,000 years. Actually, it wouldn't take that long, but I'm just using a very generous number here. After a 1,000 years, we wouldn't even recall there was such a book. Now, let's, after all of this, let's try to figure out where did this earth come from? Where did the stars come from? Where did everything come to be? And people would still be guessing, just like they are guessing in the, uh, in the educational system, just like they're guessing in the secular world. They're, they're guessing at it, and they're trying to figure out, and they think they've got it figured out to some degree, but they don't put God into the equation, and so a lot of very silly, foolish things come out from those things that they have reached uh, to, to the conclusions that they've reached. The long and short of it is when this angel comes, somehow in this interjected period of time in the tribulation, the angel finds it necessary to tell John that God is the creator. Remember, he's got his feet on the land, he's got his feet on the sea, and so he's saying is that God is possessing it all. But you also need to know that he who made it will also keep it. He who made it will also protect it. He who made it is in charge and in control. Then you notice that he swore by the revealing God. 
because he made these things known to us. He's made it understandable and in simple faith. But then you notice in verse 7 that he said that the mystery is finished. Very interesting verse. We read it this way. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. So when John is seeing this angel, it's not yet the sound of the seventh angel. The seventh trumpet is yet to sound. The seventh angel is yet to make known what the next unfolding of events are. And remember this, that when that seventh trumpet sounds, another part of the scroll unfolds, and so you've got another sevens inside of that. And inside of those sevens, you've got seven bowls, seven vials. These are unbelievable judgments. So when that, when that seventh angel sounds, now the mystery of God is going to be finished. So how he is going to bring an end to the rule of the Gentiles, how he's going to bring an end to the rule of secular man, because no matter how hard you and I try, no matter how much we teach, Sunday school, Bible school, colleges, church pulpits, YouTube, internet, writings, books, no matter how much we try, still the secularists cry out against it and they still disbelieve and the world is essentially in a state of unbelief of the things that God is and the things that God has done but yet the mystery of God, the things that the world cannot see, cannot understand, are finished. And that's what's going to happen when that second part of that massive tribulation takes place. The mystery of God comes to its final conclusion. There's also something else that I want you to notice about that, and that is that when God spoke to Daniel in chapter 9, he said to him, that there's a period of 490 years, not in that simple terms, by the way. You have to kind of know how to figure things out in Daniel chapter 9. But there's a period of 490 years that are given to complete God's program for Israel. In the midst of all of this, we would have Gentile invasion into the program of God, and we would have Gentiles who are serving in the hour of darkness, and mankind will be serving in this hour of darkness, the master of this world who seeks to control this world, the God of this age, Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, who seeks to blind the minds of people so they will not understand. Now the mystery is going to be opened up, just as he declared it to his servants, the prophets. Now, if you read through the Old Testament prophets, you will see an awful lot of prediction about the time of the tribulation. Seems that we have a hard time just putting it all together and understanding it all, but that mystery will be clarified in that day to come. We see the message received in verses 8 through 11. The voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and said, Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. So notice in this short, brief chapter, several times we have reference to where the angel is standing. Possessive, for sure. And he's got a message to bring. 
He's got this little book, and he said, take and open it, or take that little book that has been opened. And he went unto the angel, and he said unto him, give me the little book. And he said unto me, take it. Now, how about this? And eat it up. There is a principle of biblical interpretation that says that you always look for the literal meaning of the text. If the literal meaning does not make sense, then you've got a metaphor or a symbol, or you might even have an allegory. You've got one allegory in the book of Galatians, Paul says. So I don't have a little book with me here tonight. I have a pretty big book. But let's say I was able, able to take this and put it into quarters. What are the chances that I would be very successful in putting that in my mouth and chewing it down? See, in this sense, in this case, the literal sense doesn't really work. So what's happening here is that John is supposed to take this book and devour it, not just glance at it, not just page through it. He is to devour it. He is to, he is to take it and he is to consume it. That's like what we do with the Bible. If we're into very serious Bible study, then we take and we consume the word of God. We let it get into us. As we let it get into us, we let it get a hold of us. And so we essentially eat the word of God when we do in-depth, prayerful, spiritual, heart-searching Bible study. And that's what this is. Now he said this. He said, it will make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. So uh, John, you're going to eat this book, and as you eat it, you're going to find out that your tummy is going to be upset. But he says it's going to have a good taste to it. And that's really quite an interesting little metaphor. When I read my Bible, it's quite pleasant to read. But sometimes when I read what's in the Bible, it's difficult to comprehend how this could measure out against man. And that's what this bitter sweet is all about. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand. I ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey, so I enjoyed it very much. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. Now, what he ate, the concepts presented in this little book, you and I won't know. It's a little book of secrets that are yet to be made known in the future days. But John said, it was very nice to read, but he said, when I started to digest the concept and the idea, he said, it was very disturbing, very, very unnerving, for sure. And he said unto me, thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. I want us to make a few applications about this bitter sweet book. First of all, we see the sweetness of the word. David talked about the scriptures being sweeter than honey in the honeycomb. And he was reading the Old Testament when he was saying that. He said the word of God is sweet. And when you read, for instance, you read the Beatitudes, 
they're sweet. You, you read some of the wonderful promises, and there are many in the Bible. They're sweet. So there's a lot of sweetness about the Word of God. It is sweet because, first of all, it comes from God. Secondly, it is sweet because it is absolutely reliable and without error. So I just want you to think about that just for a moment. Uh, last night, our daughter came up. She had just written a blog, and she does a little podcast, and she writes blogs. And she had, she had written this blog and uh, wanted to run it by us. So she asked if she could come up after we got home last night and said, could I come up and I have a theological thing that I just want to discuss with you before I send off my blog. And so I said, please do. She came up and she said, I have been just kind of watching what Andy Stanley down in Atlanta, Georgia, this is, uh, this is uh, uh, Charles Stanley's son, Andy, who has built this empire in Georgia. He's got a massive, massive, massive following, including many Canadian churches. And, and she said that, that Andy has just announced that churches need to drop the Old Testament. And uh, so I said, oh, I said, okay, that's very serious because Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament, but he did not drop the Old Testament. Uh, and I said, use two verses. I said, use number one. I said, use John 5.39. Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. Just stop there. And they are they that testify of me. Beginning at the scriptures, Jesus on the road to Emmaus explained to these two men the whole idea of what God was doing from beginning at Moses. Didn't give her that verse. The other one was 2 Timothy. Timothy had studied the scriptures and they had made him wise unto salvation. The only scriptures he had to study was the Old Testament. He didn't have any other scripture. They made him wise unto salvation and every word of God was given by inspiration and every word of God was there for a purpose and for a reason. I said, send that off to Andy Stanley and let him digest that. This morning she had an answer from him. Well, in the meantime, I'd already checked him on YouTube, and he was interviewed by someone. I don't know who it was, but some interviewer was asking him, and he said this. He said, on YouTube, and this is going on, it's okay. If, even if Andy heard it, I'd be happy for him to hear it. I heard him say, word on word, he said, if the Old Testament book of Genesis is myth, it doesn't believe it doesn't mean that we can't have faith because Jesus believed in Adam and Eve. And then he said, the Bible is not the foundation of our faith. Jesus is. Well, we read that Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. There's no question about that. But let me ask you this. Let's close this book, not for a thousand years now, but let's close it for 20 years and see if you remember that there was a Jesus. Get that? If it wasn't for this book, we probably wouldn't even know he existed. 
There's so, there's so little written in secular history. I mean, there is stuff written in secular history, but it's not the person of the ages, not the person of history. The secular world didn't recognize him. God revealed it and gave it to us by revelation. And so if we don't need the book, by the way, we saw a church try this in Canada some years ago before Andy came on the scene, and it wasn't long and they closed their doors because they had said, we don't need the Bible, we just need the Holy Spirit. I didn't mean to preach on this this long. I just wanted to mention to you that the book that John was given was sweet because it was completely reliable and without error. So when I read my Bible, I'm reading truth. Truth. It's sweet because it shows us our Savior. He explains in this book what our Savior is like. Maybe John was given a bigger picture of what Jesus was about. Number four, it's sweet because it reveals the blessed hope of the rapture. The next the next great event on God's calendar is the rapture of the church. That's the next thing that happens. That's when prophecy kicks in again. Right now we have the church age responsible for reaching the world with the gospel of Christ. When that church age comes to conclusion, the rapture takes the church out, followed by the tribulation. But it's the blessed hope. When this pastor said, well, we would all like to be pre-tribulationists, I said, absolutely, we would all like to be that. <laughs> I am that. And I don't think I'm wrong. Could be, possibly. I even hate to say that, but I don't think so. I think there's enough evidence to show the blessed hope of the rapture. Number five, it's sweet because it reveals a global evangelization and massive numbers of salvation. Even after the church with its responsibility of, of uh, mission work, affecting the whole world with the gospel, the uttermost part that we heard this morning in our missionaries' presentation, the fact is that when that's done and the 144,000 are sealed by God, plus the two witnesses that will be coming, all of these will be witnessing to the goodness of God and to the judgment of God, but also to the salvation of God, and many myriads of people will come to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Most of them will die for it, but a massive evangelistic effort. You see, when the Bible says that every country, every part of the world will be evangelized, it won't happen during the church age. Much has been. But when the tribulation comes with God's special agents, the 144,000 who cannot be harmed, but will be evangelizing with the gospel of the kingdom, they will be able to go to every square foot and every square inch of this globe and preach the gospel of our Savior. So I think Judge John is excited. It's sweet to know that God's program will not fail. God's program will prevail. It is sweet because it reveals the glorious coming of Jesus Christ with the saints to finish war and to establish his kingdom. It is sweet because it reveals the eternal blessedness of living with God for all eternity. When we all get to heaven, what a great and glorious and wonderful day that will be. Church has sung that song for many years. Let's not forget to sing it.
because what a great thing it will be to be in the presence of the Lord throughout eternity. So when you think of even of just these seven things that I've mentioned to you tonight, the book is sweet. Whether it's this book or the little book that John was given to eat, it is sweet, but it is bitter for this reason. Number one, it is bitter because it reveals the wrath of God. The wrath of God is shown more frequently than the goodness of God in the scriptures. There is an angry God against sin and against sinful behavior. There is a horrendous judgment that comes through God's wrath. And just to read it is not a pleasant thing. When you think of a loved one that might have died without the Savior, you say, not a pleasant thing. If a pastor ever has to do a funeral for a person who has not professed faith in Christ, it's one of the most difficult things he does. When we talk about those who have gone on to be with the Lord, we rejoice because precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints, but he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And so when a pastor does a sermon or a funeral for someone that has not displayed any faith in Christ, but maybe has even rejected, clearly rejected, and the family knows about it, he doesn't say anything about it, but what he does is he just preaches the truth to the living because he can't say about the dead unless he lies or unless he's ignorant. Those two things can happen. Horrendous wrath. Number two, it's bitter because it shows the sinfulness of men. How wicked, how depraved. I just wanted to, I wanted to show you a picture, but I just somehow I didn't think to put it in here. But there was a woman on Fox News last night, and I'm sure she's everywhere now. She has really, really bright pink hair. Okay, I mean, they are bright. She wasn't born that way. She was made that way. You don't, born, you don't get born with this kind of pink hair. Anyway, some of you already know because you're more Fox News than I am. Uh, some of you already know because she said that we have to ask babies permission to change their diapers. Have you tried that? <laughs> In case you were sleeping when I said that. We have to ask the baby's permission before we change the diaper. She is fighting for an atmosphere of consent. I guess I don't need to say any more, do I? All right. I'm going to leave it at that. It'll probably come up another time. Just just the weirdness. I, I listened to a YouTube early this morning, and it was a testimonial about people who came out of the LGBTQ thing. And they were, one man was talking about how, though he was a pastor's son, he was lured into this, and for over 20 years he was held captive in this movement, gay bars, everything to go with that he testified of it. Now he's writing books about how he was delivered and how Christians can be delivered, how people can be delivered through Christ. And he said, I was not born gay. He said, I became gay by the influences of those around. And he said, by parents who foolishly say it's okay. Then a woman came on and she just absolutely blasted it out. She was harsh. But 
She just said that she was brought up under a gay father, under a gay mother who were authors and writers and singers. And she said, I was brought into the gay situation and they thought that I would be gay because naturally that's what the family is, is gay in her setting. And so she talked about how when she came to know Christ through the gospel witness, she found strength and power to say, that's not me. And she said, everybody around me was trying to force me to be what I was not. Long story short, there were four or five that were saying how the power of Christ showed them the way that they had been influenced into this. And by the way, from the government, top government, all the way down through the education system, everybody's told today it's okay. In fact, they encourage it. When young people want to change their sexes, they're saying, yes, go ahead, get surgery, get it done. The most ridiculous and foolish thing that anybody can ever agree to, to encourage people to do this, it comes, it stems from a sinful world. It doesn't come from God. God made man and woman, and he made the woman to be that and the man to be that, and that's what God made us to be. Sin, it reveals, when I look at this, folks, it really makes me sick to my stomach. That's what the bitterness of the book, and it reveals it to me because it reveals the final outcome upon all unbelieving, not any specific type of group, everybody outside of Christ. What is the future for those? Revelation 20 reveals it so clearly. We'll come to that eventually. In conclusion, I just want to say to you that this little book was given so that John could once again be encouraged that God be God, God is in control. Don't worry about the horrendous things that are happening in the world. So when I look at all of these various things that are happening in the world, they are not to consume me but they're to make me realize that God is in control even of those things, and God will handle these things. That's what the little book reveals. God will handle it all. Don't know the details, but it will come out. But I think that if there was anything that we need to know tonight, and that is that God will save to the uttermost all who come to Jesus, and God will keep to the uttermost, all who have come to Jesus, and God will control our lives. Don't let this world put you down. Don't succumb to the way of the world. Remember the sweetness of the book. The bitterness of it, that's to be encountered by those who are outside of God's plan. The sweetness of it, you and I appreciate what God has done in grace and mercy for us. Thank you for joining us today at the Revelation Podcast. We invite you to join us again next week for a new episode. If you're listening on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play, or wherever you're listening, please subscribe and share with your friends. If you want to hear more messages from Dr. Neil Sawatsky or learn how to visit a service, please check out openbible.ca.